British Art Talks from the Paul Mellon Centre, championing new ways of understanding British art, history and culture. I'm Anna Reid, Head of Research at the Paul Mellon Centre. Welcome to Episode 7, the final episode of the Summer 2020 series of British Art Talks. In this episode, I'm joined by three speakers. Claire Hickman is Senior Lecturer in History at Newcastle University. She has recently completed a research fellowship addressing the garden as laboratory. Claire Preston is Professor of Renaissance Literature at Queen Mary University of London and works on the intersections of early modern literary and scientific writing. Carol Rawcliffe is Professor Emeritus of Medieval History at the University of East Anglia. She has published widely on the history of the pursuit of health in the pre-modern period. Pharmacognosy is the branch of knowledge concerned with medicinal drugs obtained from plants and other natural sources. Today, pharmaceutical crops are grown on an industrial scale. Research continues to identify and find new uses for medicinal substances such as colchicine, a bitter-tasting alkaloid found in the crocus, used to treat inflammatory conditions, or vincristine, an anti-cancer compound of the Madagascar periwinkle. This episode draws the ears and eyes to the therapeutic properties of the landscape. In a series of thought pieces followed by discussion, Spanning a time frame from the medieval to the 18th century, our speakers venture beyond the uses and applications of herbs by physicians and apothecaries to reflect on intuitive knowledge, narrative and unseen processes in the rich experimental site and history of the medicinal garden. Carol Rawcliffe on the Medieval Garden In 2013, a report to Parliament confirmed that universal access to green space could save the NHS £2.1 billion a year in health charges alone. More recently, during the COVID-19 epidemic, the media have repeatedly highlighted the beneficial effects of gardens and gardening in fostering mental health in lockdown. Neither of these findings would have surprised anyone living in the 14th or 15th centuries when gardens were believed to possess powerful therapeutic properties well beyond their value as a source for medicinal plants. The word medieval is often used today as shorthand for anything that seems backward or superstitious. But just because they didn't know about germ theory or the circulation of the blood doesn't mean that our medieval ancestors were any less intelligent than us or lacked a lively sense of self-preservation, especially during plague time. Indeed, being well aware that, once lost, good health could rarely be recovered, they placed great importance upon preventative medicine and the need to keep physically and mentally fit. Their approach was based upon ancient Greek ideas about human physiology. Humoral matter, which nourished the body, was produced from food and transported to the extremities in the veins 
as a substance called natural spirit. The quality of one's environment was crucial here, for it was understood that corrupt, foul-smelling air spread diseases such as plague. Guides to health for all pockets, in prose and verse, circulated widely in the later Middle Ages, providing clear advice about how to keep your mind and body in optimum condition through the management of external agents known as non-naturals. A good diet was naturally essential, as was fresh, clean air and regular exercise, which was good for the digestion as well as keeping you fit. It's easy to see what a crucial role gardens played in such a holistic system, in which mental, physical and spiritual health were interdependent. Not only were they a source of fresh, invigorating air and a place where one could take exercise or relax, the scent of plants, the vista of rolling lawns and sight of lovely flowers the plash of fountains and song of birds, all contributed to a sense of well-being. Medieval society was, moreover, profoundly religious, placing great emphasis upon the therapeutic effects of prayer and meditation. And where better to pray than in a garden, with its inevitable resonances with Eden, where Adam and Eve had enjoyed, but lost, perfect health. Because of their vital role in both the conservation and restoration of health, gardens were regarded as an essential therapeutic resource, especially in monasteries. When the Augustinians of Barnwell felt depressed or burnt out by the constant discipline of the religious round, they were prescribed soothing walks in the gardens and vineyards rather than medication in the infirmary. Lack of adequate green space was, on the other hand, a cause of bitter complaint during the monastic equivalent of the Ofsted inspection. In 1455, the Durham Benedictines protested that it was impossible to keep fit because they had so little garden space in which to exercise. Significantly, their complaint was upheld. Dependence on gardens increased during plague time at all levels of society. One of the most popular guides against pestilence advised its readers to smell roses, violets, lilies and other cooling odours before leaving home, while a popular 15th century verse recommended that you should walk in clean air and avoid black mists, delight in gardens for their great sweetness which is sound advice that we can still follow today. Claire Preston on the medicinal garden of the 17th century. Seventeenth century science is largely determined by the work of Francis Bacon, who in the advancement of learning gives us a, a theory of scientific activity and progress. Um, he lays out what needs to be done. And one of the things he talks about is the idea of reparation or reconvening of lost knowledge. This is knowledge that was lost to mankind, uh, perfect understanding that fell when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. And Bacon calls this a knowledge broken. And 
botanical and physics gardens of this period seem to echo those kinds of um, undertakings of reparation and collection. If you look at a picture of the Oxford Physic Garden or the Padua Physic Garden that are on the website, you'll see that it's laid out in quadrants and subsections very um, elaborately. The sections of the garden might be organized by cure or by season or by place of origin. And this last parameter, place of origin, is yet another way that the botanical garden maps knowledge, attempts to put it all together, literally, in the earth. And uh, these botanical physic gardens are uh, indicative of lots of impulses to gather, collect, classify, describe the things of the natural world. And in that sense, they are encyclopedic. And they also particularly try to be medical encyclopedias. They're interested in finding medicinal plants that cure diseases. So that reconvening or collection of natural specimens is understood as a an Adamic enterprise, something that Adam himself did in the Garden of Eden. Lost medicinal knowledge to be reconvened and recuperated is going to be discovered through something that we now call the doctrine of signatures. Signatures are signs that are inherent in plants particularly, but in the whole of the natural world, that tell us what they do, what they're good for, what they can be used for. And these Signatures are usually detected as suggestive physical analogies between the look of plant materials or plant parts and the diseases or conditions or parts of the human anatomy that they're meant to cure or assist. For example, a walnut shell and the walnut kernel look like the skull and the brain and are thus meant to be good for wounds to the head or diseases of the brain. And the hairier sorts of ferns, such as maidenhair, supposedly cures baldness. Convolvulus, or morning glory, treats intestinal ailments because the plant twists the way the gut does. Well, one of my favorite works of signaturism is one that's not related specifically to medical signatures, and it's one of the most remarkable signaturist works of the 17th century. This is Sir Thomas Brown's The Garden of Cyrus of 1658. Brown was a distinguished, learned physician who wrote extensively on theology and natural philosophy, and he was interested in signatures and symbols as part of his professional and scientific investigations. The signature that he writes about is called the quincunx, and by that he means the lozenge or diamond shape, or in, indeed decussation is another word he uses. These are fancy words for a diamond-shaped parallelogram, which has four points at each of the angles plus a central point. Now, the quincunx was used initially as a way of planting trees to allow maximum air and sun and room for each plant. But Brown extends this very utilitarian idea to include a huge variety of very unlikely things. For example, he finds the quincunx in Roman battle formations, in Greek bedsprings, the way they strung the ropes, starfish, seaweed, thistles, even the inside of a bee's mouth. But the Garden of Cyrus is not really a work of practical signatures, and I think that's obvious from those examples. Instead, it's very playful, and it's especially much more mystical than medical signaturism. The other thing about the Garden of Cyrus is that it is about verdure itself, not really about gardens. The basis of verdure for Brown is that it is spontaneous and rampant and uncontrolled. Its, its verdancy and vigor is itself a kind of signature of the marvels of the vegetable world. 
it's a kind of natural rampancy which he imagines must have been characteristic of the Garden of Eden. The signature I'm suggesting and what Brown seems to be saying is that it, the signature is God's way of proposing himself and his work to our inspection and we neglect our devotion to him if we neglect that search. Claire Hickman on the doctor's garden of the 18th century. So here I am in the windy and rainy northeast looking out onto my blustery garden. But I would like to imagine that we are in the summer of 1794 and we are on a lovely sunny day and we are walking around the landscape garden of Dr John Coakley Letsom. Like many busy medical practitioners who have successful practices, he has a city house in the middle of London, which is where he works from. But he also has this rural estate, which is out in Camberwell, which we now think of as a busy London suburb, but that then was quite a rural village. And it's here that his wife lives, and it's where he spends his leisure time when he has some. So let us walk around this garden on the winding paths, and we go past the botanic garden, which is laid out scientifically and systematically. There's also an orchard, there's pleasure grounds, and there's a vegetable garden, which we pass at lunchtime, and we can see the gardeners hand-feeding the tortoises, which have been sent from America. Like many medics of the time, Letson was introduced to botany and developed a love of plants as part of his training. Before he became a successful physician, he started out as an apothecary's apprentice in Yorkshire, where his time was spent botanising, collecting and naming plants in the hedgerows and fields around Settle. And this was a way of understanding both their medicinal and botanical value. Other medical practitioners, though, particularly physicians, developed their botanical knowledge through university courses, which used gardens as a teaching and research laboratory, and botany was part of the main medical curriculum during this period. In Edinburgh, in the late 18th century, Professor John Hope taught these medical students within his state-of-the-art garden on Leith Walk. Here he lectured on the use of all the senses as ways of knowing about plants, particularly taste and smell, and he describes how you should develop those senses, say taste, in the same way that someone tasting wine would. And he used the material from the garden, which was often brought in, as part of his teaching practice. Dissection of individual plants, so holding them by hand and close observation, was an essential part of the education, which was about understanding physiology and anatomy, which could be transferred perhaps to animals and humans, as much as understanding which plants might be medicinally useful. It's perhaps not surprising then that medical practitioners such as Letsam had their own botanic collections later in life. At a time when the ever-expanding empire meant that plants were seen as economically important, both at home and abroad, and they were arriving daily in massive numbers on docks around the country. Many people, from the landed gentry to medical practitioners and lawyers, took an interest in growing and understanding these new vegetable productions. Dr John Fothergill, writing in 1774, said that he called himself a sensuous botanist because he collected what he found delightful to all his senses. As a man who had an enormous botanic collection of his own, it's obvious that plant collecting was for enjoyment for him, as well as scientific and economic interest. Although it is worth reflecting here on the intersection between these gardens and wider histories of empire and the slave trade. 
the relationship between slavery and science is particularly embedded in the natural history and botanic collecting networks of the time, as Kathleen Murphy has shown particularly in relation to the 17th century. Many of the maritime men, which included a large number of ship surgeons, who were collecting for naturalists and botanists around the Atlantic, were doing so along slave trade routes. The ships then, which perhaps went out carrying human cargo, may often have returned with productions of trade alongside exotic plants and animals for British gardens. And some of these specimens were even collected by enslaved people themselves. So someone like Letson, a Quaker, who released the slaves on the plantation he inherited when he was in his 20s, was still benefiting from the Atlantic slave trade, as plants and animals that came in off these ships ended up decorating his garden. Like the gardens themselves, which formed interlinked networks across the empire, as places where plants could be acclimatised, grown and dispersed to other places, such as Kew Gardens, owned by the King, and John Hope's Garden at Leith Walk. It is clear that the beautiful, useful and of scientific interest in garden terms are inextricably linked to wider global, social and economic contexts. The beauty of the gardens that we go and visit now, or even the plants that we grow in our own gardens, often hides a much darker and violent past. Carol Rawcliffe is author of Delectable Sights and Fragrant Smells, Gardens and Health in Late Medieval and Early Modern England, where she cites the 15th century Neoplatonist physician Marsilio Ficino's 1489 Three Books on Life. You can draw the most from the spirit of the world, especially if you nourish and foster yourself by things which are still living, fresh, and all but still clinging, as it were, to Mother Earth. And if you dwell as frequently as possible among plants which have a pleasant smell, for all herbs, flowers, trees and fruits have an odour, even though you often do not notice it. By this odour they restore and invigorate you on all sides, as if by the breath and spirit of the life of the world. Your spirit, I say, is very similar by nature to odours of this sort, and through the spirit, a mediator between the body and the soul, the odours also easily refresh the body and are of wondrous advantage to the soul. Carol, your words, as well as Ficino's words, point to a sense of the very physical health benefits, not just of diet, fresh air and exercise, but the sensorial and even aesthetic experiences of scent and rolling lawns or bubbling fountains. Are we to take seriously these medieval intuitions? Oh, we certainly are. Uh, Ficino, who lived in Florence at the end of the 15th century, he died in 1499, was a philosopher and a physician. And the extract that you've just read comes from a wonderful guide to how to have a long and healthy life and, and, and to stay happy as well, which is uh, advice we can all follow, I feel. Um, and medieval ideas about the senses uh, are very different from our own. Uh, people believed that images were absorbed directly into the eye and, and thence to the brain bearing with them the, the imprint and the nature or actual substance of whatever you happen to look at. Uh, so if you were transfixed by some horrific sight, uh, such as a person dying of plague, 
there was a strong possibility that you could contract the disease itself because you'd absorb it into your body. And conversely, though, something beautiful or very holy would have a health-giving effect on both the body and the mind. And the same, as Ficino points out, holds true of scent, which could make you very ill or even kill you if they came from something like a rotting dung heap, or greatly enhance your capacity to resist disease. Um, and interestingly, Robert Burton, a, a great 17th century author of The Anatomy of Melancholy, actually it becomes very medieval when he says that sweet smells of fine fresh meadow flowers and the melodious harmony of birds can dispel the black, dark, cold humour of melancholia. That's what we'd call depression. Uh, and, and also, in addition to this theory of intromission, uh, we should bear in mind that scent, sound and sight had a dramatic effect on your animal spirits that influenced how you behave, that drove your nervous system, that influenced your thoughts and your reactions. So the calm beauty of a garden would soothe your spirit, it would keep you relaxed and happy and contented uh, rather than sending your, your uh, animal spirit into a frenzy of fear and terror and perhaps cause a heart attack or, or a stroke. Claire Preston is author of The Poetics of Scientific Investigation in 17th Century England. She points to Thomas Brown's The Garden of Cyrus. The ancients venially delighted in flourishing gardens. Many were florists that knew not the true use of a flower. And in Pliny's days, none had directly treated of that subject. Some commendably affected plantations of venomous vegetables. Some confined their delights unto single plants. And Cato seemed to dote upon cabbage. While the ingenuous delight of tulipists stands saluted with hard language, even by their own professors. Claire, Brown's words in The Garden of Cyrus give such a sense of adventure and the play of metaphor in the 17th century pursuit of knowledge. Did narrative play a much more central and generative role in Bacon's empirical method than has been appreciated? Well, it's certainly true that Bacon has long been thought to be uh, the person who banished the metaphorical, the analogical, the, the the narrative from the development of scientific writing. And that's that's clearly not true. He doesn't ever say that. In fact, one of my favorite phrases of Bacon's is that he says, in order to express the new ideas that, that the science of the 17th century is throwing up, um, we must pray in aid of similitudes. So he has a very strong sense that the resources of the rhetorical of rhetorical figures, of tropes and figures, of analogies and similes can actually assist scientific expression and possibly even assist scientific thinking and um, investigation itself at, at a primary level. To think of, of things ununderstood as like things that are understood is a way of moving from ignorance to knowledge. Thomas Brown's The Garden of Cyrus has been described as a rhetorical tract, how does Brown make use of narrative and metaphor? Well, he's <laughs> Brown is very geeky. That's the first thing to say about him. So the first thing he does in virtually everything he writes is tell you everything that 
has ever been known or ever been said about a subject. In the case of the Garden of Cyrus, it's about the quincunx and the, the diamond-shaped lozenge and where it appears and who has talked about it and who's used it. But I think the, the important thing to understand about the way that Brown and others are deploying their rhetorical systems, whatever those may be, is that this is a period in which there is no as yet agreed upon way in which to express the findings of science. And all the people that we call scientists were not only not professional scientists, because there was no such thing, but they had never been trained as scientists. Uh, you could be trained as a doctor, but nothing else. So these are all people whose training is, is highly verbal, it's highly rhetorical, it's humanist. They are using the resources of classical antiquity, particularly the writings of Cicero, Seneca, Ovid, Virgil, and so on, to think about the way that you make points and how you provide conclusions. What I'm getting at is there is no approved scientific way of speaking or of delivering information. So they're using what they have, which is to write, um, for example, dialogues. Um, Robert Boyle writes a dialogue set in a garden with named speakers who all have sort of dramatic parts to discuss different systems of, of chemistry. Now, he doesn't do that. Neither of them do this because they think it's amusing or, or decorative. It's because it's as good a way as any to express competing views about how the world is made and, and, how, um, and how we might think of, of the natural world. And I think that if we remember that there is no lab report in the 17th century. There's no scientific journal until the late 17th century. And even then, there's no format for doing this. We have a very broad range of rhetorical and stylistic resources to use. And Brown's is to pile instance upon instance. So when you read something like The Garden of Cyrus, what you have is a kind of compendium, an encyclopedia of everything that you can possibly ever want to know about the quincunx. One of the funniest things that I've noticed about this, because I'm also editing this uh, for an edition, is that the original printer of the 1658 edition clearly runs out of capital Qs for quincunx because you know, no printer has ever had to use the Q so much because the quincunx is so often mentioned in, in the track. So that that sense of, of verdancy, abundance, of, of rampancy, even of um, examples, is very typical of the way Brown makes the point about, in this case, the commonality of the quincunx in nature. Claire Hickman is the author of The Doctor's Garden, Medicine, Science and Horticulture in Late Georgian Britain. Dr John Fothergill, writing in 1774 to John Bartram, regarding shipping of animals with plants to his garden. Please let him know that I received the turtle in good health and shall be much obliged if he will procure me a male and female bullfrog. Mine are strayed away, notwithstanding my best endeavours. If they are put in a little box of wet moss, they will come safe. At least I received a little American frog, the Rana Ocellata, in a box of plants filled with moss. Claire, 
Does the medicinal garden of the 18th century pose a reality quite different to that represented by much historical writing on garden design and landscaping of the same period? I think there are other ways in which we can think about it that do that. So one of the interesting things about the medical practitioners I've been looking at in their gardens is there's not a named designer who works with them. So rather than thinking about how they design them, and why they designed the way they did. It's kind of more interesting in some ways to think about how they connect to wider ideas beyond. So thinking about how people, plants, animals sort of circulate through spaces. So how things come from other gardens, maybe abroad, maybe in the same country. Um, How people train in different gardens and then move on elsewhere as a way of thinking about sort of the processes that happen within the space. Um, So I think I've been thinking a lot about uses and experience, which we also see in sort of texts about the general 18th century gardens we hear about. So we often hear about, you know, Capability Brown and his work at, say, Stowe. We hear about Stourhead. A lot of the time the fixation is on the aesthetics, the kind of classical ideas that they use. But I think we can also take these ideas that we think about with less known gardens to consider how they were used in experience. So the kind of sensory experience that Carol talks about in relation to the sort of medieval garden, we can think about what was a sensory experience like if you were in some of these other gardens. So what would you come across? What would you hear? So the kind of animals that turn up in the gardens are a good way to think about this. And then we can think about where do those animals come from? So there's some lovely stories about American bullfrogs which arrive in boxes of plants to John Fothergill's garden in West Ham in London. And he talks about how he kind of makes a space them in the garden, how the bullfrogs try and escape, one of them does escape, how he was going to send these to the king. I don't think he's ever actually make it to George III. The bullfrogs themselves then escape out into the world. But by thinking about that, we can think about what those human-animal relationships are like, what the sensory experience is like, and then how this connects to other gardens, other places, how it connects the empire more broadly. And I think it just gives us a different lens to think about how gardens operate in this period. The exploitative aspects of 18th century medicinal commerce that you describe still resonate today, don't they? Yeah, I think there's a lot of hidden labour, I would say, to do with gardens, whether it's um, how the global trade works. And I think when we think about gardens themselves and we visit them particularly and we think about beauty and we don't really think about who does all the work in the garden so the gardeners get excluded generally but then how do things arrive in gardens and what are those trade routes and of course the trade routes for plants and medicinal plants are often you know the kind of global networks in the indigenous world they follow slave trade routes there seems to be a lot of work in the 17th century in James Pettifer and the kind of routes he was using for his natural history collecting and there's no reason to suppose that that's you know plants must have been coming in on sort of similar approaches and then of course indigenous people's knowledge often gets excluded because when plants come back to this country we change the taxonomic names this kind of european renaming of plants often showing kind of networks of friendship amongst botanists which kind of takes out that indigenous knowledge of who kind of use the plants in other countries how they are used who collects the plants how they then arrive in Britain and that seems very kind of hidden but I think it's a way of opening up these kind of stories about how we can tell more inclusive stories about landscape now and how we can think about how we relate our kind of English 
the English landscape garden we often talk about to wider kind of global networks and think about this in a broader way. Does the recalling of these histories of the medicinal garden enhance our contemporary understanding of human health? I think by thinking about the garden in the past and how people related to it, particularly with ideas around kind of sensory engagement, is really important for thinking about how we respond to gardens now. So in my other work, I've looked at modern hospital gardens and psychiatric institution gardens. And there's clearly a long history that builds through all the things that Carol and Claire have talked about, with this idea of how you respond to the garden, how we have both a physical sense of, you know, being in the garden, of walking around the garden, of kind of exercise outdoors, but all those kind of sensory engagement with the outside. So particularly with things like birdsong. So I've been looking at accounts of open-air hospitals in the early 20th century, so where people went for things like tuberculosis. And because you're outdoors all the time, the relationship with the birds becomes particularly strong. And I think when we think now about our engagement, say, in lockdown with COVID, I've seen a lot more people talking about the plants in their gardens, but also their relationship with birds. I mean, I've got a blackbird called Barnard, who's been coming into my garden, and I'm very excited when I see him, but that's because my world has shrunk. And then my sense of well-being is then related to this smaller compass of a world, which, you know, is kind of plants, but it's also animals and birds. And I think that sensory experience runs all the way through. And I think we can think about our relationship in much sort of longer historical terms. I, I was interested both by what Carol was saying at first about the healthful regimen of being in gardens and being allowed to walk and to experience in a sensory way the, the various things that plants and flowers can give us. And also what Claire was saying about our current world being so constricted by, by coronavirus. Bacon says somewhere that he tells the story of a nobleman who every morning would have his servants bring to him a sod of freshly turned earth, which they would bring to him on a tray and he would breathe it in in bed before he rose. And that to this, he attributed his very long and healthy life. And that sense of being outdoors and that itself being healthful persists today, even if we're not in a garden. If we're simply outside and outdoor air is thought to be inherently better and better for us than anything else. But there's a kind of scientific and horticultural background to that idea. Do you think there is a value to the history of the medicinal garden in a current context where questions of ecology and biodiversity are pressing? I'm interested in the way that um, Early modern gardens are thought of as not only as encyclopedic, but specifically as arcs or as repositories of banks of not merely information, but the physical plants themselves. And I'm very moved by the way that the, the seed banks of the modern age, especially, for example, the one at Kew Gardens, are rigorously preserving specimens, seed specimens usually, but sometimes other kinds of specimens, rigorously preserving all these in against the, I was going to say the coming catastrophe, but the catastrophe is upon us. And that these are almost like reservations for plants as refugees. The problem that we've created in the world, which is that 
you know, we have mass extinctions happening and, and climate change making certain kinds of growth now completely unavailable to us is being remedied, restored, saved, reconvened in a funny way, rather like the early modern thinking about the reconvening of knowledge is being convened in these rather artificial but nevertheless very essential repositories. And, I mean, the irony is uh, of it is that... Um, uh, and I'm not going to be able to remember offhand where it is. I think it's in Scandinavia. Uh, a, a, a seed bank in the high Arctic was recently damaged by the fact that rising sea levels owing to climate change made the whole secure container leak and has destroyed many of the seeds that are meant to survive that very catastrophe that we've created for ourselves. I think this idea of the repository and the place and the value um, is a really interesting one um, that Claire's brought up. And I'm just thinking about, we talk about plant blindness now, that people don't necessarily value plants, that they don't notice them, that they're not part of their world, although people are obviously doing quite interesting things at the moment with chalk writing on pavements to point out wild plants so people notice them. But in these earlier periods, plants themselves were incredibly valuable. You know, they had economic value, but they also had like scientific value and they were really regarded as very important. And I think in this kind of time when we're thinking about what is important and the ecological value, we kind of see ourselves sometimes now as humans and then nature is the thing out there. And I think in these earlier periods, there is more of an intertwining of human and nature lives and that the ecological system is seen as sort of more entangled and together. And I think this is something that we can learn from. We think about how we relate to nature now. Yes. And Brown in the Garden of Cyrus is very interesting in that respect. You were, Claire, you were talking about the, the way that people now point out flowers and trees by writing on the, on the pavement in chalk. Brown's Garden of Cyrus, the, the middle chapter, which is quincunxes in the vegetable world, is entirely about local plants. He lives in Norwich, he's looking, he's he's roaming around East Anglia, and he only talks about local plants, and most of them are weeds. They're not even economically valuable plants. They may be medicinally val valuable, but they're not crops. Um, so, and I, I think that's really worth thinking about, that, that there is wonder in the local. This is not, you know, um, exotic stuff that's been brought from the four corners of the globe. It's stuff that's growing outside his house that's, you know, a mile away from his house. And his whole uh, sense of the way the natural world entwines with one's personal world is very geographical and local in that way. So I think, again, we, we're having more of this kind of looking back to a kind of a much more symbiotic relationship and a much more natural, local rather than global sense of the world as impinging on us, uh, you know, in our everyday lives. Do these histories and stories help us to reimagine the relationship between the human and the landscape? Well, I, I think one of the very striking elements here, which doesn't obtain so much today, I suppose is the strong religious element that one has in the past with gardens, um, certainly one that Thomas Brown would have had. And Claire mentioned the idea of Adam as a gardener, and it's very striking, I think, in the period I work in, certainly, 
how far people regard the garden as a, a sort of simulacrum of paradise, that they're trying to get back to a paradise, trying to get back to a Garden of Eden and trying to create something that was lost. So perhaps we, it, we today have lost something about the awe that people may have felt about gardens and the part that it may have played in their religious lives as a, a locus where you would go to, medi- to meditate or where you might go to study, where you might go to think about your, your spiritual life as well as your physical life. And that's something that's kind of absent, I feel, from modern-day reactions to gardens. It, it would have been impossible in the Middle Ages to separate the religious from the non-religious, the secular. So, for example, there are images which survive, one of which is on our website, of Christ as a gardener appearing to Mary Magdalene with a very, very medieval-looking spade with which you could do some serious digging in a garden which is full of scented herbs so that when you walk on it, it would release these wonderful odours that would go into the atmosphere. And there's a a wattle hedge around the outside. So, in a sense, it's quite realistic. But there's that idea there all the time that you're in a religious space as well as in a a very functional space where you can grow plants, where you can take exercise, both very closely connected. Yeah, I think that religious understanding is a really important one. So a lot of the doctors that I've looked at are actually Quakers. Um, And in the 18th century, there seems to be a Quaker sensibility about plants and the combination of their beauty and their usefulness is also related to their sort of religious worth, I think. And there is a moral underpinning that runs through this in terms of how they're thinking about the role of gardening um, and the role of plants, whether it's kind of growing things for food or whether it's growing things to kind of wonder at God. But that sense of wonder, which I think Claire also mentioned in her section earlier, is like a really important element of this the idea of the plant being the exciting thing. So even agricultural crops in the period I look at are seen as really exciting because they're new and they're different and farming experimentation is sort of a wonder in itself. And I think, yeah, that sense of wonder and awe is an important element of the kind of the stories we tell. And I think by connecting these things together, by telling these kind of new, different stories about the garden, we can perhaps encourage a wider audience of people maybe to engage with the past and what the past can sort of tell us about our relationship to nature today. Um, Carol was just talking about the way that you, that that the garden is imagined as in some way related to what, what we are trying to get back to, what we've lost. And Brown says at the very end of his his dedicatory epistle to Garden of Cyrus, the delightful world comes after death and paradise succeeds the grave. Since the verdant state of things is the symbol of the resurrection and to flourish in the state of glory, we must first be sown in corruption. So the idea there that, that it's not merely that we must make gardens but we must be gardens we must be sown in corruption in order to be verdant and to achieve paradise i love that phrase thank you to our speakers for this final episode of the summer 2020 series of british art talks the doctor's garden medicine science and horticulture in late georgian britain is a forthcoming monograph by claire hickman for yale university press Claire Preston is the general editor of the forthcoming Oxford edition of the complete works of Sir Thomas Brown. 
Written in collaboration with Claire Weeder, Carol Rawcliffe's Policing the Urban Environment in Pre-Modern Europe is published by Amsterdam University Press. You can find a set of images relating to this episode at the Paul Mellon Centre website, and that's also where you can find the full summer 2020 series of British Art Talks. Thank you for listening. The Medicinal Garden is produced by Freya Hellier. The assistant producer is Alexandra Quinn. It is a Loftus Media production.